Hi, this is Tom Compton. You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events. Ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's WHTT Speaks Out, we're going to be talking about ISIL, or it's also known as ISIS, the Islamic State in Syria, Islamic State in Levant, or IS, Islamic State. It's changed its name. And what we're seeing is an interesting phenomenon. Well, Chuck will relate an experience he had at his church while listening to a very good sermon. And so we're seeing a lot of deception here in the United States with the idea, of course, it's being played up by our media and government, that Christians are being killed by ISIL or ISIS. And why is this? We want to look into that. Is it really just Christians? There are many more Muslims there, and they are suffering even to a greater extent. So people are losing their lives and they're losing their homes, fleeing what's going on there. So it's a very complex situation, but anybody that's looked at what the United States has done going back to 1991, for example, in the first Gulf War by George H.W. Bush will know that these wars are planned. Now, the planning doesn't always work out. And so we can see this now 23 years later, what's happening in Iraq, that it is disintegrating into into three parts. And the uh, uh, Shia area in, in, in Baghdad, the, the uh, Kurdish area, and uh, also the, the Sunni area that's being held by ISIL. So what we want to talk about is this conditioning, if you will, that Americans undergo to go to war. And one of the things, of course, that you need if you want to go to war is you need an enemy. you gotta, you got to hate somebody. And, of course, George Orwell uh, did this very well in his 1984 book about the need for enemies. So Oceania and Eurasia were uh, always at odds against one or the other. There's another Oceania, Eurasia, and what was the other one? I can't remember. Anyway, there was three powers, and they would change sides. So one day the uh, enemy would be your, your friend. And so it doesn't work quite exactly like this, but we've created so many enemies. We've killed so many people in, in America's wars from the Korean War, the Vietnam War, all these wars that we are conditioned, you might say, to accept these wars, and we really have to hate people to uh, be willing to allow our government, our military to go to war. And of course, as we point out in our award-winning documentary, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and Turning, the U.S. has a war-based economy. And uh, to keep the war-based economy going, you need wars. And, of course, to do that, you need enemies. And we are never at loss for having a lot of enemies. So, Chuck, why don't you start out and 
first little background, we, we got interested in this through George Galloway, who is now a member of Parliament again in the UK, who stood up, and we have that posted on our site, a very eloquent speech why UK should not get involved in Iraq again. And so, Chuck, why don't you uh, well, give us a little course, background? Uh, Thanks, Tom. Iraq, of course, has been horribly defeated. Uh, we think of our inconvenience in the in, in the la- in the wars of the last 24 years, which started in in Iraq in 1991, and it went on for more than 10 years. And we we can't even begin to appreciate the total destruction of Iraq that's taken place. And we we also have a hard time uh, imagining what kind of a government was put there by our military once uh, we decided we were through with Iraq and that they were ready to govern themselves, it's hard for us to imagine what we left them in terms of a government. We're now seeing that that government was completely, and and the army that went with it, the army we set up, uh, was completely unwilling to fight anybody and incapable and, and, and very, very partisan. And so you ended up with a civil war in Iraq. And then out of this has grown up uh, the present ISIL, uh, which, of course, is taking ground everywhere and is incredibly brutal and and has apparently indeed beheaded two uh, captured newsmen and maybe other people. And now we're beginning to have all kinds of rumors going around about the brutality of ISIL against individual groups such as Iraqi Christians and Christians in Syria. So we're responding to this, but there's also another big factor that's uh, popped up, and that is there behind the scenes, almost unnoticed, uh, we've seen a publicized, quietly, uh, not, not secretly, but quietly publicized oil glut in the United States to where it now appears quite certain that there is an enormous surplus of crude oil in the United States that's actually produced in the United States. And uh, so then that means that there's an international glut of crude oil. And uh, so what does big oil have to do with all this? Now, coming back to ISIL, the two things that no one seems to know about ISIL is, number one, exactly where do they get their recruits? It's pretty well accepted that they pay them. In other words, they're not a volunteer military, and they're not drafted like some of us were. Uh, They are actually money-paid volunteers who are probably paid well enough so they fight very well. We have our own experiences in our own country with Blackwater, now known as XE. We don't hear much about it anymore. They've changed their name. But uh, the people that work for Blackwater were paid from 9000 to 20000 a month and uh, more if they were uh, really high-up officers. So uh, we don't know whether uh, the ISO people are paid as well as the Blackwater volunteers, but obviously somebody is paying them. So then the second question is, uh, besides who these guys are and where are they from, who's paying them? Because whoever is paying them is creating uh, an incredible war situation And, of course, uh, our leaders are responding by starting to bomb in two different uh, sovereign countries, Iraq and uh, Syria. So here we are in the middle of this mess. We don't know even who these people are. 
there's a, a lot of speculation in my report. I've taken the position that it seems that Saudi Arabia is involved, and with them Qatar, some, some people call it Qatar, and a couple of the other Arab Emirates who have, who have joined the U.S. as allies. It looks like they are, are definitely involved in some manner with ISIL, but nobody really knows. So we have a, a secret enemy with secret financing. That's what we are facing. We're trying to address that. I noticed in the church that I attend and belong to, uh, that's, uh, that's pretty straight in, in most cases, that the pastor yielded to the temptation to talk about Christians being the victims of ISIL's brutal attacks. And the reason he would say that is he probably reads Christian publications, and they're saying that. It's being, it's being spewed out that ISIL is actually an anti-Christian organization. So we don't know uh, the truth, but we're trying to find it, and, we're, and we feel obligated to say something we're talking to other people, and in my own experiences, the arguments about Saudi Arabia being involved have an awful lot of support. In some cases, people don't have good proof, but they're saying that they are somehow involved, and of course, they're almost as good an ally of ours as is Israel. And uh, some people say Israel is involved, but we haven't seen evidence of that. But uh, Joshua Landis, uh, director of, for the Center of Middle East Studies, uh, he's a professor of international studies at the, uh, formerly at, at the University of Oklahoma, and he's uh, president of the Syrian Studies Association. Is going to be speaking tomorrow night at the Denver University, and he talks about the probability of Saudi Arabia be, uh, being directly involved in ISIL. Uh, so others will be there. I'll report in a week or so what I hear there, uh, but I keep hearing this reoccurring theme of, of Saudi Arabia being involved, and uh, I'm sure some of you have heard other stories, so I'll shut up and see what others think. Uh, question mark. Who is uh, carrying the guns, and by the way, where are they getting all the ammunition and wonderful weapons they have? And then secondly, uh, who's funding it? No, I, I just, uh, again, I, I'm with Travis. I don't have enough information to have a good opinion. It just, it just seems very contrived. And, well, and, that's, and that's the way the American public is today. They just don't know. And, of course, the more deception we get, the more we're convinced that it is being, it is a secret. We're not supposed to know. We're not supposed to have any idea who is being, we're supposed to fight through an entire war against these people in two separate countries without ever having any idea who our enemy is. Or if they even are an enemy, maybe they're on our side. Maybe they just want to... Uh, put Iraq back in the position of being a, a, a place where you can live. It's unlivable at the present time. The people of Iraq are, are, are the victims of almost as bad a genocide as has happened to the Gazans in the last 10 or 15 years. And it's been longer with Iraq. It's much longer. I'd like to add something. To the, the situation is very complex, but ISIS at the time came into public attention when they attacked Mosul and the stories about the Iraqi army just running away. And uh, here's a piece that uh, with Patrick Cockburn, he's a Irish journalist. He's with the, the UK's Independent. He's been in the Middle East correspondent uh, since 1979. He's, he's been in Iraq. He just wrote a book, The jihadis return, ISIS, and the new Sunni uprising. 
But anyway, this was an interview just just recently here, and uh, he's uh, just to show what the legacy of what America did in there. His response: He's talking about the uh, the Iraqi army has got three hundred or three hundred fifty thousand uh, men in it, and that they spent forty one point six billion dollars for the army over the last three years, but it just disintegrated. Uh, because of an attack by a couple of thousand people in Mosul. Why did it happen? Well, the army was rather extraordinary. I mean, one Iraqi general I was talking to who'd been forcibly retired said at the beginning of the disaster was the Americans, who, when they set it up, insisted that supplies and things like that should be outsourced, privatized. So immediately, a colonel of a battalion normally of 600 men would get money for 600 men. But, in fact, there were only 200 men in it and would pocket the difference, which was spread out among the officers. And this applied to fuel. It applied to ammunition. At the time of the fall of Mosul, there are meant to be 30,000 troops there. In fact, it's estimated that only one in three was there. Because what you did was you joined the army, you got your full salary, and then you kicked back half that salary to your officer who spread it among officers. So I and remember about home, a year. Right? What's that? And then you, then you went home. Yeah, well, I'll, let me finish the quote here. So I remember about a year ago talking to a senior Iraqi politician and who said, look, the army's going to collapse if it's attacked. I said, surely some will fight. He said, no, 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 you don't understand. These officers are not soldiers. They are investors. (laughs) And so he goes on here that you could, uh, in 2009, you want to be uh, a a colonel in the uh, Iraqi army. It'll cost you about $20,000. More recently, it will cost you about $200,000 $200,000 to become a colonel. You want to be a divisional commander, and there are 15 divisions. It will cost you about $2 million. And so, anyway, that's just the craziness of what's happened uh, in Iraq. And so the uh, that, that's a kind of an interesting explanation of uh, how this thing got rolled up. Uh, so we left, them without a, we left them without an army. We said they had an army. We left them without a government. We left them without an army. And we left them with a total division of their people by, by a religion, Sunni versus Shi'i, and with no economy. And probably the oil has been stolen too. Yes. And, of course, when you have countries divided, then it's easier to control them. They're not much of a factor, so they, there's, the, there was really no army to speak of that we built up in 1991, and we decimated. We know that at least a million, if not a million and a half people have died during the sanctions that Chuck mentioned. Uh, there were over 500,000 in the 90s, children that died because of these sanctions. We're seeing the effects of depleted uranium ammunition and and munitions used against the Iraqis with increased birth defects. We saw the same thing in in Vietnam from Agent Orange, uh, even 30 years later, uh, the, the effects of what we have done. So 
we need to go from one war to another and then forget what we did in the past and not seem to learn any anything from these exercises. I think more people are catching on thanks to the Internet, but it's still a big hurdle, as was demonstrated by your pastor, pointing to the Christians get killed and uh, not seem to worry about the Muslims. I wonder what he would have said about the uh, the Christians in Gaza. There's not very many there, and uh, we know of one that was killed in the last incursion by Israel in 2012. So there obviously were families, Christians, that were affected by this Operation Protective Edge that uh, ended in August, where over 2,100 Gazans were killed, over 500 children were killed, and there was no outcry from the pulpits, as far as I know, in mass about what was going on there. So we have selective indignation because of this conditioning that... This, this really does bring us back to what our mission really is, which is uh, we've said all along that we, we have an incredible vacuum of knowledge and it's intentional, we're, we're deprived, and uh, we also have no moral basis. There is no uh, substantial moral center seeking out an end to these things, recognizing this, these national brutality, and, and it comes back down to the churches. And so our trick, I suppose, is to try to get our message out to more churches. Well, I might point out, Chuck, uh, we're seeing uh, that we t- in our, our video the tragedy in turning Christian Zionism, I'm seeing a turning. We're seeing a turning away from a lot of these ideas. It's very, very slow. But this was emphasized to me last week. A couple friends here in Phoenix went with me to San Diego to the In the Occupation Convention. There were over 300 people there at San Diego was their largest convention. It's the U.S. campaign to end the Israeli occupation, which is kind of an umbrella organization of over 300 organizations. But uh, I sat in in a couple of the what they call the faith-based advocacy groups, and so that it was very encouraging what was going on uh, in these different groups. And I've been in contact with one that they're putting on some conferences and fundraising for Gaza. So there is more awareness. Uh, one of the groups from Chicago actually is starting a campaign. Is, is Israeli military detention no way to treat a child? The mistreatment of children, the administrative detentions without charges. And so... It is. It's turning, but it's still slow. And you're right, Chuck. We need to keep applying the pressure and education. Education is really the key. What we've talked about, the Presbyterian Church USA, PCUSA, with their Zionism Unsettled Congregational Study Guide is doing, provides a very solid educational base for people to understand the reality of what's going on, particularly in the Israel-Palestine conflict there. And, of course, that that is a good point. We made this point before, but uh, the Presbyterian Church has been diverted to some degree, uh, probably purposely, from really working on their uh, 
educational program inside the church to uh, working on a national divestiture program. And this idea of divestiture uh, from the state of Israel is, is, is picked up an awful lot of steam, and it's very questionable how successful uh, it, that, that, that part is really going to be. But uh, the education part is what they should not neglect. And if we, if we had a way of encouraging them, then we would encourage them to conduct programs about events in the Middle East and stick to educating their, their own people inside their own churches. Okay, is there any other thoughts? Just one thing I saw on the national news on the Internet that the war is having an effect on uh, Israel's finances because of the uh, lack of tourism. Okay. Yes. That's so. one thing you can count on. People don't want to take a vacation in a, in a place where there's bullets. Right. I'd like to comment on the sanction idea. Michelle Bachman was speaking at the Values Voters Summit in uh, Washington, D.C. This, this last weekend from the, the 26th to the 28th, and that's where she was speaking about increasing and promoting more sanctions against Iran. And it, it reminded me of the uh, Madeleine Albright when she was interviewed and, and talked about the 500,000 children that died in the, in the sanctions for Iraq, and if it was worth it, Madeleine Albright says, yes, it was worth it. And, and here, uh, Michelle Bachman, a self-professed Zionist, is calling for more sanctions. And, of course, she got applause from the whole audience there to cry for more sanctions. Good point, Craig, because Iran is not off the table. Uh, this, it is still the number one target because it's still producing oil. Uh, they have sanctioned it. It's hurt Iran, but they still are managing to get oil delivered. Uh, now, uh, the, the, uh, of course, the question is, those, uh, the production in the Middle East is probably cheaper than the oil production coming out of the United States. Now, you can probably still import oil from, uh, say, Saudi Arabia by tanker cheaper than you can produce it in the United States. It, that is, providing if the price of oil went down substantially, you'd probably have U.S. production uh, in trouble first, and, uh, and the Eastern production would still be there. So this effort to throttle oil production in the Middle East, I believe, is very real. And, and, we're gonna, and if we keep our eye on that, we'll probably see more actions that... Uh, were like uh, this uh, this uh, story that we, we wrote about where the first thing the U.S. did when they went in and started bombing ISIL uh, in Syria was they, they bombed 11 oil refineries in Syria, reducing Syria's ability to produce gasoline and uh, fuel. So at the root of all this, we, we need to probably remember that, that economics always plays a part. There's always a consideration of somebody trying to control the flow of oil. Very good. And it, uh, as the picture of this Jaribi modular oil refinery that was uh, appeared as uh, an AP photo from the Department of Defense that they had before and after uh, of the, the bombing there, I titled this American Diplomacy in Action Bombs Away. That seems to be our favorite modus operandi is to uh, pull the trigger. Well, uh, bombing has proven that it does not uh, necessarily close out a war. Yes. But what, what bombings do very effectively is destroy infrastructure. Yes. And uh, 
you may not kill anybody or you may kill a, a nominal number or you may bury them so you never find them but uh, but the, uh, the, the, as this as this one man said at the at the vigil we were at this one Jewish man uh, well Israel only killed 1100 people and they destroyed did he say 11 1,200, over 2,000. He said over 2,000. Yeah, but they destroyed a uh, hundred and some thousand homes. No, he, he claimed 13,000. And, and I've heard... Oh, is that the number he said? Well, yeah, he said 13,000, I think, Chuck. Okay, so, again, infrastructure is what is what was absolutely destroyed in Gaza. And... That's what we really are not hearing about. How do they live without all of these facilities that are gone? Yes. How do they, how do they make their lives? And uh, there are more and more people now saying that Israel's objective is to drive the Palestinians out of Gaza into, uh, into the desert, into the uh, Egyptian desert. And that's, that's been talked about. That theme is, is popping up every now and then. And so uh, destruction of infrastructure is what the bombing of ISIL will do. That will accomplish that. They will destroy petroleum plants. They will destroy factories. They will destroy warehouses full of stuff that's needed. That kind of stuff is destroyed very well by bombings. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for your input. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.